Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Maura Sardouin, a host for the new podcast, Voices of the Queer South. And I'm here with co-host today, John Marjolet. Hi, John. Hi, Morris. I'm so glad you could be here today. I'm so glad our guest here today, Pip Gordon, is also a future host on the podcast. We lured him in to keep working uh, with us as we go down the road in this venture. Uh, Today, we're talking about Pip uh, Gordon's book, Gay Faulkner, Uncovering a Homosexual Presence in Yoknapatafa and Beyond. Um, Welcome, Pip. Well, hello. Very pleased to join you all today. Um, well, I, we are thrilled to have you. We have been talking with you, full disclosure um, in, uh, to the, our listeners, uh, oh, since over the summer when all three of us began working on uh, our, our various book promotions during this pandemic. So mm-hmm. uh, we, we, we've become a real nice little tight group, uh, three, trying to get our work out there. And this new podcast, we hope, will help us and a lot of other writers who have similar issues. Um, get their work out there. So we appreciate all the listeners, but I appreciate you two guys helping me do mine. I'm sure you guys do the same. Let's get on to it. Um, Pip, uh, first of all, tell us about yourself a bit, your background, and how did you come to write this book? Why, why would you want to do this? Um, so, yeah. Um, wow. That's, that's a big question. Uh, so, um, my name is, uh, Pip Gordon, though my students just call me Dr. Pip up at the University of Wisconsin at Platteville, where somehow or other, though I'm a native Southerner, I, I landed here. Um, so I, uh, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, um, at some point in the distant past. I uh, grew up in rural West Tennessee, about 100 miles north of Oxford, Mississippi, where William Faulkner was from. And back in high school, uh, when I realized that I, I enjoyed studying literature, um, I picked up a copy of The Sound and the Fury, one of Faulkner's more famous novels, and thought I would try to read it so I could answer a question about it on an AP English exam. That did not go as well as planned. And for anybody who has tried to read um, The Sound and the Fury, you you probably understand why that didn't work out too well. I, I wasn't even sure who was talking at any given moment in that somewhat difficult book. Um, but it sort of started an obsession with Faulkner. Uh, I did my undergraduate work um, very near my hometown, um, up at a, uh, at a place called the University of Tennessee at Martin. Uh, and while I was in an American literature class there, I we, we were reading William Faulkner's follow-up to The Sound and the Fury, a book called Absalom, Absalom. And one day in class, I just made the statement that the two main characters, Quentin and Shreve, were obviously lovers because, of course, Faulkner would write queer characters. Because Faulkner was a modernist, and like all the great modern writers of the early 20th century, of course he had to be a homosexual. And I went on for a few minutes with an answer that was, I don't know, probably not as brilliant as I thought it was. Um, At which point I finish, and the whole class falls silent, and the teacher looks at me politely. And he's like, Faulkner wasn't gay. And I thought, (laughs) but I just are we reading the same book right now? Like, I, I'm sorry, did I miss, what detail am I missing here? At which point I was told, you know, Faulkner was married to a woman named Estelle Oldham and that there's no real reason to believe that he would have been gay. Also, not that certainly not all modernists were. All of this was like news to me. Um, 
And that's sort of when I started thinking, why, why did I get that impression? Where is that coming from? And then I applied for grad school at the University of Mississippi, where I did my master's degree and my uh, PhD. And while I was at the University of Mississippi, um, my very first semester, I took the Faulkner Seminar with a man named Dr. Donald Cardiganer. Um, and As I Lay Dying became sort of the, the, the touchstone text for me at that point um, and is still now my favorite novel, all writers. Uh, and I happen to notice that Darl Bundren in that book also fits into this sort of sense that something about him is not as people believe or as it seems. And so I started sort of trying to follow up on that. And I, I began by working on these sort of very out there theoretical models from queer theory and using fancy French terminology and histories of, of word definitions and, and, a, and a theorist named Michel Foucault who I'll just sort of move on from that. Uh, but, um, and as I started to explore the question of, of why do I get this impression that there is something queer about William Faulkner, um, I finally encountered a professor who told me I should stop trying to prove this by talking about advanced theory. And I should just find some archive somewhere where I might find some firsthand letters or accounts of Faulkner's life and see if I could if I could find evidence there to support what I thought was going on. And as it just so happens, um, up at Southeast Missouri State University in that wonderful little town of Cape Girardeau, about two hours south of St. Louis, and also just about two hours north of where I grew up, uh, they have a fantastic archive on the life of William Faulkner. They have, back in the, I believe, eight, late 80s or early 90s, they purchased all of the notes compiled by Joseph Blotner, Faulkner's approved official biographer. And it's just boxes upon boxes upon boxes of letters and interviews, some conducted by Blotner, some that he made copies of, just material he collected over the 10 years that he spent writing his famous two-volume biography of Faulkner, which he then revised down to a one-volume biography of Faulkner. And it's just an enormous, an enormous cache of, of information. And as I started going through it, I spent about three weeks, all told, uh, just sitting in an archive all day, flipping through letters, trying to speed read. And it did not take much time at all to find out that there was material in those letters that had not made it to the biographies and that people were not talking about. And I certainly never found any explicit evidence that Faulkner engaged in sex with another man, but I'm not sure if that's the standard of evidence that we are supposed to use um, in order to determine one's sexual orientation. Nor do I even think that the answer to the question is proving that one was definitely gay because of X, Y, or Z. It was more a matter of as I, as I went through the material, it was incredibly clear that William Faulkner had known many openly gay men in his life, that throughout his life, whether he was in New Orleans, where he spent a few years, or New York, where he often traveled, that he was, that he was always seemingly intentionally surrounding himself with, with, with openly gay men, living in openly gay neighborhoods, not just the Vucare in New Orleans, but also in Greenwich Village, um, where he very purposely tried to find an apartment. 
uh, where he met many of the influences that would be so central to his life. Um, and then even throughout his life, even after he got married to Estelle Oldham, which only occurred after she herself had been previously married and had two children. He maintained close friendships with gay men he had met in Oxford in his youth. Um, when he was in either Hollywood in the 30s or back in New York in the late 30s and 40s for various publication-related uh, matters, he always seemed to find himself near to queer communities and openly gay men. And then some of those men, such as his best friend Ben Wasson, uh, wrote a memoir after Faulkner's own death. And in those memoirs, there's all sorts of coded language um, that I say coded. It's it's not like completely opaque. It's the kinds of hints and the hints and innuendos of of sort of mid-century queer identity, where one both wants to acknowledge that love that dare not speak its name, but also recognizes that it's not appropriate to say it out loud. And what starts to emerge from all of this archival material is a William Faulkner who was deeply, deeply connected to openly gay communities throughout his life had clearly been aligned with those communities and in his life had even been called variations of what we would now say is homosexual or gay or queer. And there's a whole history behind that word if y'all would like to chat about it some. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so with that, it just became apparent that there was more to talk about with Faulkner. So, wow, you see, you started with the long question and so you get the long answer, but then <laughs> you're like, tell us, tell us your history and the history of the book. And I'm always happy yeah. to do that. To tell you. Well, Thank you. You did a good job. Leads- Thank you. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, go ahead, John. No, I, I think it, it leads perfectly into the next question we have for you. Um, and I, I got to tell you, I, the thing I loved about your book, in addition to learning about Faulkner, because literature is not my area, and I don't know a lot about it, but the, the, the queer and gay identity piece just fascinated me going through it. And so I was curious, in your introduction, you said, um, you said, was Faulkner gay or versus the question of, is there a gay Faulkner? Can you talk to us about the difference between those two questions for you? Yeah, sure. That is, that's a fundamental question that and at the time when my thesis committee and dissertation committee sort of raked me over the coals about what I thought these words meant. I was not pleased with having to justify what I thought these words meant and what the, what, what the question was all about. But over time, mm-hmm. I recognized there was something kind of inherently useful about um, separating those questions. For the question, was William Faulkner gay? Um, there's a lot of difficulties with answering that question. The first, when, you know, within the LGBTQ plus community, even if I had found explicit evidence, a love letter from Faulkner that made like absolute claim uh, to him being openly gay at some point in his life, but that letter had been sequestered or hidden away, there's politics in coming out on behalf of some historical figure after their death that, that sometimes upsets others in the queer community, that it's not really kosher to do that if they did not do it in their own lives. Uh-huh. Um, and so even if I had found, you know, that that hidden piece of information that would absolutely prove that Faulkner was gay, there would have been some issues with presenting it since he's no longer alive. Um, and also, I think that it's a bit of a fool's errand to assume that the only way to talk about historical figures and their relationship to queer communities and queer identities 
is to have to prove it. Um, the famous queer theorist Eve Sedgwick, um, in her famous book, Epistemology of the Closet, picks apart all the ways in which that demand to prove homosexuality overcomes any questions about what it, what if we just start with the assumption that they are gay or at least understood that um, so that we can actually move forward with some kind of productive conversation. And I, it's not that I've totally dismissed the question, was William Faulkner gay in the book, though I also was very careful in that 140,000 words um, not to explicitly answer that question, simply to present evidence from his life and leave it to readers to determine what we would make of it. Um, but the other question, what does it mean to say there is a gay Faulkner and is there a gay Faulkner, has to do with the fact that that Faulkner has, frankly, he, he's died. Uh, as the theorist, I think it's Roland Barthes, uh, says, you know, the author's dead, the death of the altar, author. And so that leaves us as readers with quite a bit of agency in how we approach the mm -hmm. books that we read. And that day back in that class at the University of, uh, of Tennessee at Martin, when I, when I just assumed that Absalom, Absalom was a gay text, um, when someone wants to read Faulkner as, as relevant to like, gay identities, queer identities, instead of being able to talk about how the story itself registers these desires, what ends up happening is, you know, you're made to prove that Faulkner was or was not gay, which is a way of distracting from simply reading the story and the obvious evidence there. Um, and so asking, is there a gay Faulkner is a way to try to move beyond having to spend an entire book proving Faulkner's sexuality and rather to approach his, some of his famous works, Absalom, Absalom, A Rose for Emily, uh, are two of his very, very famous works that many people have questioned whether or not there is reason to read gay desire into them. And I, I wanted to be able to do that without having to bend over backwards first to prove that he was gay. Uh, and in doing that, when you start moving down that path, you start finding other stories less well-known, like Divorce in Naples is a story I spend some time on, which is about as close to openly gay as a story could have been in the 19, like 30s and 40s. Um, and then what if you actually start reading broadly in just all of his works under the assumption that he knew that homosexuality existed and that he might not have been just completely disturbed by it? And suddenly what emerges is an entire canon of literature. His enormous body of work is just rife with, with evidence of, of relevance to gay identities and gay desire. And if you have to spend your whole time proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that William Faulkner was gay and may or may not have slept with another man, then you don't get to move into all of the literature. So I wanted to jump over that question and imagine what does it mean to just talk about homosexuality in reference to Faulkner, whether or not we can ever prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was certainly gay. So that's kind of how I thought about those two questions and why I wanted to approach the second one. It's fascinating. And the, the next question I have for you really leads, leads off of that. Um, in chapter two, you've called, you called chapter two queer Faulkner. You say that Faulkner was called queer or in the Southern <laughs> Southern draw queer by other kids in school, but you said that doesn't mean they were calling him gay. I wondered what you meant and also how our understanding of the term queer today is different than it was when Faulkner was growing up and people were calling him queer. 
No, uh, thank you for that question because that often gets to sort of uh, as a as a as a scholar where I run into where I run into some uh, some argument with other mm-hmm. scholars um, that so I mentioned earlier a man named Michel Foucault he was a French theorist who um, wrote several books that are very very influential to how we study history and literature such as Discipline and Punish and, and others and these are deeply complicated texts and they have their pros and their cons. But in his introduction to the history of sexuality, volume one, he very famously um, offered that the word homosexual was not coined until he offers the date 1870. There is some there is some question as to whether or not the word appeared in print slightly before then. But he says it was basically coined by some psychologists in Germany uh, in order to be a diagnostic tool as the field of psychology developed to diagnose what was perceived as some kind of unnatural derangement that could be treated, that if that, that the natural world must obviously mean that men and women wish to marry and have children, and so any other queer impulses are problematic and could be diagnosed and treated in some way. And he also then decides that if that's the way in which the word comes about, that some German psychologists take the, the Greek, the Greek freight, the, the Greek root homo and the Latin root sexual and just like tie them together, that they're inventing a concept that prior to the invention of that word, there was no such thing as what we consider gay identity, that there were just bodies touching bodies, men who might have sex with other men, but did not perceive an identity at all. I question that premise entirely. I don't think that's true. I do completely concede that when we look back 200, 400, 800 years, what we perceive as what we would call now gay identity, trans identities, any of our kind of current understandings of queer identities, that those identities, they're not the same through time, that there's been change. But change doesn't mean that these identities in some form didn't exist. So in order to understand these identities through time, you have to be very thoughtful about what words were in use and how would they have been perceived. And as it so happens, um, again, according to Foucault, it's sort of in the latter 19th century that what was previously perceived of as maybe something that people did that had relations to religion and morality became something that scientists wanted to study which then directly influenced the ways in which self-identified gay people, queer people, homosexual people, understood their place in society. Um, and as that trickles out of Europe, um, thanks to books by like, oh, Kraft Ebbing and some others uh, that I should know their names better off the top of my head, but they're very German and I am not. Um, so <laughs> as, 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 those, as those books trickle into um, the United States and Great Britain, uh, as the trial of Oscar Wilde unfolds in the very last years of the 19th century, um, what emerges is uh, sort of new definitions and new ways of people understanding these terms. And at least according to the Oxford English Dictionary here in the United States, somewhere in the early 20th century, uh, an old word that goes back at least to, to the Renaissance, queer, begins to have very specific resonance as suggesting homosexual, which is the newly coined term to describe these desires, these same-sex desires and gender variants. Um, 
And then, yeah, in Mississippi, right around this time, a young William Faulkner was very interested in art and drawing and writing and and activities that in a hyper divided gendered society with clear masculine and clear feminine uh, 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 acts that one is supposed to participate in would be perceived as strange in ways that people aligned with this idea of homosexuality and led to people calling a young Faulkner that wonderful Mississippi variant of the word. And I'm going to say it the best I can, queer, <laughs> that queer. Queer, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, which, by the way, biographers go to great lengths to spell specially, like Q-U-A-I-R. Like in case- I loved how you did that, Pip. I think it's perfect the way you said it. Uh, and yeah. I, I get that, like uh, like Blotner and other biographers, like the the very esteemed and, and excellent biographer of Southern history, uh, Joel Williamson, also borrows that spelling to sort of n- note that this word is a reference to something global, even like in the Western world, in Europe and America, queer is acquiring homosexual connotations. But then what is it doing in Mississippi and the, you know, the, the 19 aughts and the 19 teens? And over Faulkner's life, um, the word doesn't go away. By the time he is an undergraduate at the University of Mississippi in the very late 19-teens and into the early 1920s, he may have at that point begun to semi-court a woman named Estelle Oldham. And I question the extent to which that courtship was necessarily deeply ingrained in their futures. Um but even then, now the, uh, the undergrads, the co-ed undergrads and others in Oxford were moving away from this local variant, queer, and were instead now very clearly calling him queer. And the biographers spell it differently. They now spell it Q-U-E-E. Ah. Uh, as, as if to suggest that these folks at the university are not just like the locals who may or may not know the full implication of this word, but as if to suggest that these co-eds and all would would in fact be aware of current current scientific models for sexual for sexuality and might have traveled or read in contemporary in contemporary magazines contemporary places uh wherein these words are more crystallized and 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 have more specific meaning um and this 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 trajectory charts faulkner's early life and then you go back and and uh, this could be maybe follow up or something because again I can go on for days. The the book is one hundred and forty thousand words, and that's after I edited it down. Um, you know, but um, that at the same time in Faulkner's early life, he is surrounding himself with men like Stark Young and William Alexander Percy, uh, men uh. of an older generation, like ten or so years before his life, um, who we align with with gay with gay identities, queer identities, um, and then he. Through his own like youth, he aligns himself with men like Ben Watson, who becomes a lifelong friend and is roughly the same age as he. And then later in life, another 10 years later, he becomes friends with men like Hubert Creekmore, another undergraduate who would go on to write gay novels of his own. That he's in this transition from the emergence of a new understanding of sexual orientation that is a little bit closer to what we understand as gay identity. And he's also part of a progression towards our own very distinctive understandings of these identities in our contemporary space. Um, Wow. Word history. Isn't it fun? You know? (laughs) Well, thank you. It's fascinating. And you could do another book on the whole, um, the whole meaning of queer in Mississippi history. I I just love it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know a bit about that history. (laughs) We we do that with in the South with the word queen too. You, you quang, 
Yeah. You have <laughs> oh, I love it, Morris. That's great. <laughs> it's true, too. Um, okay. Thank you, John. And Pip, it's, um, I, I have to apologize. I did not read the uh, book's uh, description, but, but Pip went on in the very first question because I asked him about it. He gave us almost uh, uh, exactly the description that I would have read. So I won't bore you with, uh, not bore you, but duplicate it here. But uh, I do want to read a little bit of a blurb about um, Pip's background because I neglected to do that and I feel terrible. Um, Pip Gordon, Philip Pip Gordon was born in Memphis, Tennessee and grew up in nearby Jackson. A proud West Tennessean, he holds degrees from the University of Tennessee Martin, uh, where he got a BA in 2005, and the University of Mississippi where he got an MA in 2008 and a PhD in 2013. He currently lives in Platteville, Wisconsin, where he teaches American literature, film, and gay and lesbian studies. He lives with his dog, Scout. Um, again, sorry for missing the first part of my typical, uh, our standard practice would be to read the book blurb. Um, but um, I want to go into the next piece of the book uh, with my question, which is you have a series of chapters that are called, uh, for example, Queer Faulkner, Gay Faulkner, Cadet Faulkner. Um, and so in each each taking on a different persona. Tell us about what about why you did that. What, what, why was that? Uh, how how that was necessary? Because it was, as as the reader will see. Uh, yeah. So that some of that does go back to the the previous answer and trying to capture the extent to which um, certainly the first five chapters are are trying to chart Faulkner's own own growth and personal development, sort of a coming of age story of Faulkner, the way a biographer would try to capture some of that. And in his youth, when he's a young man, say before 1918, which is a critical year in Faulkner's life for a number of reasons, um, that I, I work to align him with you know, queer Faulkner and the, the specific use of that term in his hometown, which until he was 18 uh, was very much his world entire, as you might say. Um, there's evidence that, you know, W.C. Handy's band came out of came down out of Memphis and played at parties that Faulkner went to as a as a child, as a teenager, uh, and that he wasn't entirely stuck just in Oxford. But his life was defined by being in Oxford. But when we reach 1918, um, at least according to the stories uh, in 1918, Faulkner had he was interested in this young woman named Estelle Oldham. She was uh, a co-ed at the university. She was being courted by another guy. Uh, and supposedly they were sort of like they had a crush on each other. Estelle Oldham did not really want to marry this other guy, but her family wanted her to because he was seen as a better catch. And so she supposedly asked, you know, young Billy Faulkner, why don't we run off and get married? Basically save me from this sort of arranged marriage with my family. Uh, and Faulkner said no. Um, and he said, oh, well, if we're going to get married, we should do it the proper way. I should ask your dad. And he starts like romanticizing about what, what marriage might be. Uh, and instead, Estelle's like, well, that's not going to work. So she marries a man named Cornell Franklin in 1918 and moves away. And when Faulkner recognizes that sort of that fantasy of maybe growing up to, to, to woo and marry some correct girl that he thought was going to be his future bride, he he leaves town and then sort of two, two, uh, two strands of his life. I mean, they're going, they're occurring at the same time, but it felt useful as a, as a writer to try to separate them out. On the one hand, he goes to New York city and he, he meets people in, uh, in Greenwich village for the first time. And this actually directly leads to his later choice to move to new Orleans in the Vucare and where he meets 
uh, a gay artist named William Spratlin and they travel together to Europe and then they hang out in gay Paris and, um, and in, in gay Paris, they meet all sorts of other artists who may, maybe it's not said in all the biographies are also gay or, you know, sometimes the word that shows up is bohemian. Um, as, as if that word like might right. mean more, more than they suggest. Um, and all of this is the sort of queer Faulkner narrative. As Faulkner moves out of his hometown, he directly contacts gay communities that would certainly help him understand gay identity, gay desire in, in clearer ways. And so I want to track that through some chapters. Uh, but at the same time, he also then went and he attempted to go off to war and fight in World War I. No evidence suggests he ever even left um, his training base in Toronto, Canada, where he was eventually quarantined for at least six weeks during the 1918 influenza pandemic. Um, he never apparently even got to fly a plane by himself or even with someone else there to make sure he didn't crash, but he would later pretend like he had. Um, and as it turns out, there is already a fairly well-established scholarly history of queer desire and queer identities being presented in war fiction from World War I. Um, and that's where sort of the idea of Cadet Faulkner shows up, that if on the one hand he's going to New Orleans and New York and even Paris and submerging himself in already established gay cultures and gay communities there, um, he's also touching on these other themes that emerge uh, in writings by, you know, uh, Wilfred Owen and Siegfried, Siegfried Sassoon and other major British uh, writers from World War I who have long been aligned with uh, gay identities. And there's a, a world of scholarship out there that's trying to, that tries to explore the extent to which one's, one's going off to war queers you in a way that suggests being around that company of men might make you, I don't know, attracted to him or something like that. Um, and so there's oh, that, that. Yeah, exactly. And then that starts to emerge uh, very, very much in Faulkner's writing. And although Faulkner had almost no experience of war in any real capacity, he, he made it to Toronto. He famously lied and said his name was Faulkner. Uh, and originally his name was spelled F-A-L-K-N-E-R. He added a U to his name for the first time to make it seem like he was from an aristocratic British family. He tried to pass off mm. his thick Mississippi draw as a British accent. And instead of saying he was from Oxford, <laughs> Mississippi, he said he was from Oxford, England. Um, you know, like you do. Uh, and um, right. when, he, when he did that, um, he, he was able to join the RFC, which also at almost the exact same time officially changed his name to the RAF. So he joined the RFC, but he was discharged from the RAF. Um, and and he got onto a training base to learn how to fly planes, like, you know, like, like <laughs> in some kind of weird romantic notion of like the bloody red baron with Snoopy on top of a of a of a of a doghouse or something. Um and he never left the base. He was there for a few weeks and the flu and the influenza hit, and he was quarantined. And what few letters exist are of him writing about how frustrated he is that he's literally not allowed off base. No one is during that second wave of the influenza in 1918. But simultaneously, he starts writing letters where he lies to his parents and says, oh yeah, I flew a plane today. 
uh, oh yeah, you'd be amazed at all the amazing acrobatics I engage in. He even went so far as to lie that he had been given promotions and had a certain rank and would be wearing a certain uniform. That was not true. He was like the lowest level cadet who had the most kind of un, uninspiring, undifferentiating little brown uniform that, that one would wear. But he managed to trade off some things and purchase a fancy uniform so that when he got off the train in Oxford, Mississippi after discharge at the end of the war, um, he looked like he had been a soldier who had gone to Europe. And he began telling stories about how he had a, a leg injury and maybe even a metal plate in his leg from all of that, all that dogfighting that he had gotten into in, the, in his heroics. And for years upon years, people believed him. His early biographers struggled to find any evidence that he was in the war at all, but they were completely convinced he was because his stories were so rich with detail and he held to them throughout his life. And in the stories he tells, he tells the stories that he is in some way like as if he is this sort of strange, queer, bohemian, European figure who has left Oxford, Mississippi, experienced a broader world that may have influenced him in subtle ways that we don't like to talk about. And then he comes home and now he's this strange character. And it's almost like performing this soldier identity becomes a surrogate for the ways in which prior to the war, he was seen as just like the local queer the soldier identity is actually intricately tied to the way in which he wants to be seen as queer uh, and wants to perform identities that help him connect to something that he was not really able to express in his small hometown. So, I mean, that's again, that's that's that is that's sort of why I went through for the, you know, queer Faulkner, queer Faulkner, gay Faulkner, which is a reading of some of his uh, some of his novels and stories from this period to cadet Faulkner. To, to starting to look very specifically at his soldiers and his fiction from this period, all culminating in Darrell Bundren's character and As I Lay Dying, a soldier figure who's returned to his native Yaktabatafa County and is, and is struggling with his identity in a way that I work very hard to align with queerness, explicitly meaning that he is gay. So... Hmm. Good. Um, I, that's there's that's so much. Uh, it's so illuminating the book because um, he's a writer. He's practicing. He's learning his skills. Uh, making up all these stories. So good for him. I think. Um, I have a question. You jump over in the back of the book. I, I'm jumping over in the back of the book. You have this his character that is involved. Um, V.K. Ratliff. Um, who's very important, and you give that 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 uh, chapter him a whole chapter explaining that. Um, he had a, he had adopted uh, Faulkner adopted a gay identity uh, influence in his work, which you just talked about. Um, the importance of that character helped personify all, all that Faulkner himself perhaps had experienced and involved. T- tell us about that. Why is this character? Because you give that character again a biography in the back of the book, which I found very interesting. Uh, tell us a bit more about Mister Ratliff. Well, I'll, I'll actually try to tie that to the the previous question and sort of my, exactly. my rambling there. That um, that that um, he, on the one hand, in Faulkner's life, uh, when we try to trace his life, the idea of telling one linear narrative where this happened and this happened and this happened is is problematic because he's actually sort of experimenting with 
all these different identities, and they are all emerging and interacting with each other. Um, um, and if you think of them as separate as separate paths, they certainly are not like all parallel. He was not this queer bohemian figure, um, and we can trace that by itself. And it's completely separate from his soldier persona and the way he faked being a veteran, which was also queer, and also the what what he's writing at various moments. Actually, these 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 are constantly interacting in all of these ways where he is like literally at one time a bohemian and later that day meets somebody and is pretending that he's a soldier. And I argue that all of these are ways in which he's acting out queerness, um, which at this time is very much uh, aligned with homosexuality as like a, a way to identify and label an individual who fits into this community, into this, into this identity category. And at the same time, he is beginning to write. Um, all of his great characters are beginning to sort of be, become formed in his mind. Uh, and he actually wrote kind of a doomsday book early in his career where he laid out a history of his famous county um, that he would draw on. And it's sort of a very broad outline. It's not, it's not one of his novels per se. But he keeps retelling these stories that he originated all the way back in this period of his life when he is experimenting with all these queer identities. And so early in the book, I work to explain his own submergence into gay communities and also the ways in which his, his persona as a soldier becomes a way for him to act out queer identity with another sort of twist, you might say. And at the same time, he's beginning to write a character whose original name is Surratt, who shows up in some early draft story um, that is going to become central to Faulkner's life works, a story of this little place called Frenchman's Bend out in Yachtvatafa County uh, with these characters who he keeps coming back to and everything from his um, third novel, Flags in the Dust, all the way through his final novel, um, uh, The Reavers. All of these characters keep reemerging. But with Surratt in particular, Surratt shows up at a time where he's just sort of this this character who fits into this sort of mold of sort of a country bumpkin, fairly, frankly, um, traveling around in a, in a car or a buggy selling, selling various items. And he just sort of becomes this, this comic figure who Faulkner can use in stories. But over time, he keeps revising this character and revising this character. And by the late 19, well, by the late 1930s and in the 1940s, this character has evolved and had his name changed to uh, V.K. Ratliff. And then through the 1950s, that V.K. Ratliff becomes again a very visible character to align not necessarily with our, our understandings of these queer identities from the 19-teens and 1920s, but in this case, very directly aligned with even newer concepts of what homosexuality was in the context of the Cold War. And I sort of argue in the book that the reason V.K. Ratliff is such a useful, um, a useful character to write a biography of is because, and, and, and anybody who's tried to write fiction probably recognizes this impulse, that in, when you write fiction, you, it's not that you've ever experienced exactly what the characters have, but you might sort of envision your own life and what if this were what I were doing? Or maybe this character becomes a way for me to experiment with my own sense of identity and play around with it in ways that I can't express openly, but I can at least explore here. Faulkner did that throughout his life. Uh, and with V.K. Ratliff, 
it seems to, towards the end of his life, he seems to have recognized that Ratliff is very much him. It's very much this guide figure who's always there to tell a story, is always there to explain meaning, and is this affable, courteous figure who's also described as inscrutable. But the more you look at that inscrutable figure, what becomes visible is somebody who knows in his own mind that he certainly is queer, but also knows how to not make that the not make that visible within his home culture, within his home region. Wow. Uh, and so after telling the story of Faulkner's life, the goal is to move to a point where I was able to use one character to say, now let's let's address how Faulkner's whole life is this fiction making, both in his real life and on and on and on paper. And these things are intimately related in how Faulkner explores and expresses his queer identity. Mm. Yeah, it's just it's so fascinating. It is. This is this is kind of along the same lines, but changing focus a little bit. You talked a little bit earlier about um, Faulkner's queer friends. And uh, there's some people like William Alexander Percy and other people. I I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about Faulkner's queer friends and his relationship with them. Yeah. So and admittedly, like that, that gets us away from talking about like this literary figure who changes over many different years. In fiction. <laughs> and that gets us into just like when you start looking at the letters and things, you're like, wow, there's all these gay men. Well, you know, gay men love to talk about love, so, love socializing. So, of course, you know, I'd ask that question. Oh, of course. And that's the yeah. thing. Like, Faulkner is constantly surrounded by these men. Uh, uh, generally speaking, the kind of the old the older version of understanding Faulkner's life is that well he was going to marry Estelle Oldham he loved her from the day they first met when he was 6 years old and there's no reason to question anything about his complete and utter impe- unimpeachable heterosexuality in reality she married another man and then like you know was gone for many years and he went to to New York and New Orleans and Paris and, uh, and, and it's maybe not as linear as you would think. Um, Mm. and the other side of it is to, to sort of act like Faulkner is just insanely anxious about sexuality. And the only way he can understand sexuality is by acting out like, Oh no, sex, ah, or something like that. Um, which is not true in Faulkner's life. But it becomes a way to deny that Faulkner would ever be comfortable with anything that was not a very strict, like heteronormative version of straight interactions. Um, And so when it comes to homosexuality, where people have tried to write about homosexuality in Faulkner's life and works, they often act like if Faulkner knew about it, it probably made him deeply uncomfortable. He probably didn't really know about it, so it's not worth writing about at all because he could never have met any men who were gay or been involved in gay communities because he lived in a small town, and that's just not something we should talk about here. And then you start going through the biographical record, (laughs) and that record includes that early in his life, he... um, one of the first influences on him was a man named Stark Young, who lived in Oxford, Mississippi, uh, throughout Faulkner's youth, and was uh, a writer and a poet and a playwright, who clearly was the first major figure in Faulkner's life he knew personally, who was a writer. And Faulkner, um, early in his life, wanted to model his life after Stark Young. Can he be like Mr. Stark? Can I grow up to be that kind of man? Well, that kind of man was a gay man 
who actually left Oxford, Mississippi to try to find at least some like some room for maneuver in his gay identity. But there's no evidence to suggest that Stark Young was not openly gay in Oxford. He just preferred to live somewhere else. Um, William Faulkner meets a young a young undergrad named Ben Wasson in in his first days in when Ben Wasson's first on campus. And I make quite a bit out of their first meeting that Wasson returned to many times in his own memoirs. Wasson was a 16 year old undergrad who is described as this angelically beautiful boy. I do not I do not wish to tarnish the image of Wasson in the for for the for for listeners who might who might be more traditional in their approach to these things. But Ben Wasson was a twink, like 100 um, <laughs> percent. And so uh, in Faulkner's in Faulkner's interactions with him. Faulkner very clearly courted Ben Wasson. He would go find Ben Wasson in the in in his uh, dorm room, and he would pull Ben Wasson out onto the grove or in the circle. And Wasson would lay there on like a, a blanket and twirl his hair and play with clover or something like that, while Faulkner <laughs> read uh, read uh, poetry by Conrad Aiken about queer men who snort lots of cocaine and wear dresses or something like that. And uh, this is actually the exact story that leads to uh, other undergraduates walking by and looking at the two of these men, this one absolutely gorgeous twink laid out on the grass while another man reads him poetry. And all these, um, all these co-eds are walking and undergrads are walking by and be like, that's 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 pretty queer that's beyond that that's queer that's definitely i i think they're lovers you know um (laughs) and then to make it even even more like i bet they're lovers uh faulkner and wasson actually at one point uh wasson would later describe in his memoir um at a house just north of campus owned by the stone family and phil stone is a very important figure in faulkner's early development uh just as a friend and mentor uh when the stone family was not at home Faulkner apparently had like carte blanche to go to their house and hang out and just like sit in their parlor and listen to their record player. Well, he would take Wasson up there and the two of them would sit and listen to like Beethoven on these Red Seal records. And Wasson describes this in his memoir as like the surge and rise of that music moved us. And you're just reading this like... (laughs) I bet it did, honey. You know, uh, I am. Uh, and then they would walk back through the dark pathways of the woods to campus. And I'm like, this is the most romantic thing I have read about Faulkner's life ever. Because frankly, most of the stories about he and his wife that are recorded are less about romance and more about, well, I guess we have to get married. And then they just drank a lot, um, which pardon me, that's sort of an over- oversimplification, but whatever. Gay relationships have been oversimplified before too. So let's just oversimplify the heterosexual in return. Um, but, and, and, and then Wasson introduces Faulkner to William Alexander Percy and uh, down in uh, Greenville, Mississippi, Faulkner is insanely drunk and they try to play tennis and it's just not a good thing. Uh, and Percy sort of says, Ben, would you please ask your friend to leave uh, more or less? Uh, and as much as people like to focus on, well, Faulkner must not have liked Percy. Yeah. As soon as Faulkner arrived in New York city, a few years later, one of the first people who he visited was, was Percy who was in New York at the time. He also ended up staying with Stark young for a couple of nights when he first arrived in New York in order to find his own apartment. Um, and so what starts to emerge is a Faulkner who knew gay men sought out their company, hung out with them openly. People commented on it and recognized it. And all of this is in the archive. And then through the early 20s and mid 20s, 
Faulkner lives in New York with an openly gay man, William Spratlin. The set of artists who are surrounding them in the Vucure are entirely aware of this. And I make a little bit out of a story of a douchebag hanging in their shared bathroom um, that probably would have struck Faulkner. At the very least, Faulkner would be aware that his gay roommate has a douchebag hanging in the bathroom. Like that seems like something hard to hide. Um, uh, and, uh, <laughs> Not and- subtle. Yeah. And and several of their uh, mutual friends seem to have even sort of joked about the possibility that they were themselves lovers. I have no evidence to support that, except that they lived together for many years and clearly got along very well. Um, And then when Faulkner tried to make his move to New York, he relied on some of the gay uh, gay men and other queer identified individuals in New Orleans like Lyle Saxon and others, who had moved to New York themselves and had begun something called the Southern Protective Association, sort of an informal uh, group of Southerners trying to sort of hang out with each other in New York around all those, you know, brooding, big-shouldered Yankees or something like that. Well, the Southern Protective Association is almost entirely composed of, of gay-identified men. And at some point, I just, I start to question how many gay men does Faulkner have to be comfortable around and know well before we concede that maybe he wasn't quite as anxious about these things as we make out that he was? And this is all in the biographical record. You can see these names. They're everywhere. And when Blotner interviewed them, they tell hilarious stories about their queer identities and jokes about douchebags in bathrooms. And somehow or other, all of this ends up on the cutting room floor. And what does emerge in Blotner's biography tends to only be stories about like later in life when Faulkner interacted with Tennessee Williams and the two of them, those two famous Mississippi authors did not have the best of working relationships. They didn't, they didn't seem to be terribly comfortable around each other. Um, But, and that's all that's left is just Faulkner, Faulkner making fun of Truman Capote or Faulkner being unsettled by Tennessee Williams, as if that represents the entirety of his, of his interactions with gay men throughout his life. Meanwhile, he's also like inviting Ben Wasson to his daughter's wedding and making sure Ben Wasson sits in the pew reserved for family um, and stuff like that. So it just, that whole history of gay men is actually, sometimes I, I look back on the book and think, I should have just cut out all these readings of his novels and just told the biography of his friendships with these gay men. And, and I hope that readers, when they're reading it, if you're someone who sort of gets a little bit lost when I'm referencing random lines of, of very, a very, a very forgotten poetry that may, maybe, maybe it's just a skin out of there. Just read the biographical stuff because there's so many men in his life, openly gay men with whom he had such wonderful interactions and friendships. And all of that has been effectively overlooked in the biographical studies of his life thus far. Yeah, you use the term overlooked, but I think it, it sounds it's intentional. It was pack, repackaging. You know what I'm saying? I, it's, it's, I, yeah, go ahead, Morris. I, I'm just wondering what you think of that, because I, it's, it, the way you just described it sounds like it was intentional repackaging of this man and his life uh, over the, the years. Yeah, the original version of this uh, of this book had a much longer introduction that 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 spun my wheels way too much. I'm glad when when push came to shove, the biggest cut was I cut this long introduction that tried to set up some of these themes. And and my my thought was, all I have to do is tell this story. It doesn't need an introduction. The introduction is a start of chapter one. 
and the brief three page introduction that I do have attached onto it is just basically to say, here's a little bit of a primer of what you're about to read, but read it. Let this story speak for itself. Right. Um, but but with with these stories in the original very long introduction, I spent way too much time trying to figure out was this intentional, like like Blotner knew it and purposely cut it, or is it that Blotner might have recognized it, but in his own mind and in, in the world in which he was writing, it was simply not considered significant, um, or did he just miss it? When he's hearing all these stories that he just wow. as a speaker not recognize what he was being told. And I don't know, like, Blotner is, Blotner's dead. So I don't want to like, you know, rat on him. His biographies are considered paragons of the form. They're some of the most important literary biographies in the American canon. But sometimes you just want to like, hey, Blotner, do you, do you know what you did? Do you understand that this is problematic? Or did you do, and did you do it on purpose? But, you know, what I wonder, Pip, is, you know, you'd mentioned Tennessee Williams. If you go visit or anyone, any of our listeners ever visits the Tennessee Williams birthplace in Columbus, Mississippi, you'll see that there is no mention or even a hint that Tennessee Williams was ever gay or homosexual on those days, as they'd say. And the thing that just is... um fascinating or just discouraging, I suppose, is the fact that you're saying that the question of whether or not Faulkner was gay is not even even thrown out there. It's not really. And um, some some folks on like in like Facebook reviewers, you know, uh, have gone a little bit crazy about like, there's no evidence Faulkner was gay. And that's, again, why I, I tried to avoid answering that question. But it certainly um, in my experience uh, with Faulkner scholars, and many Faulkner scholars are, are wonderful, thoughtful, and there are so many other ways to approach any great author. Um, that I don't mean to malign like the field, but there has been significant resistance to the idea that Faulkner was gay. Kind of one of the paradigmatic stories I tell about this was back in, was it 2007, the annual Faulkner conference in Oxford, Mississippi, Faulkner and Yachtmatafa, was devoted that year to Faulkner's sexualities, so possessive Faulkner's and sexualities, plural. At least the backstory that I heard through the grapevine, which may not be accurate, but I'm, but as anybody who's tried to do biographies of queer lives knows, sometimes you have to learn how to listen for truth in in, sto- in oral stories rather than necessarily find all the evidence um, printed out somewhere. That the backstory I heard was the original title was going to be Queer Faulkner, and that set off quite a few people who were not comfortable with that. So they decided, what if we do Faulkner and sexuality? Well, people didn't want to do that because so many of the conference themes are always Faulkner and postmodernism, Faulkner and consumerism, Faulkner and film, Faulkner and fill in the blank. And so they said Faulkner's sexuality, singular, and that scared people. And there was a pushback against that as a title for the uh, conference because it implied that we were going to uncover something about a singular sexuality. And if the answer to that question was not heterosexuality, then what do you do? And so they finally lighted in on Faulkner's sexualities as if there's some plural versions here that would, would allow for plausible deniabilities. At least two papers of that conference were devoted to queer studies, gay readings of Faulkner. One of those was by a guy named Gary Richards, who wrote a book called Lovers and Beloveds, um, which was very influential to my own work. 
and when he tried to argue that the men Faulkner knew in New Orleans were gay. That's it. That's what he argued. He said some of these men were gay. People were very bothered by that. And then when Jamie Harker, um, who would go on to be my dissertation director and also does uh, would go on to be an editor of the of the Faulkner conference, uh, uh, the book, the book published from the essays at the conference and has just recently written her own book on uh, the lesbian South. When she tried to argue that there is a lesbian reading of Absalom, Absalom, in which you can find evidence, especially in a rural southern context of a of a of a lesbian space within the novel. And it was a brilliant reading that relied on explicit textual evidence tied to explicit historical context. And she was pummeled in the Q&A that followed. People were deeply unsettled. And it finally culminated in somebody in the audience standing up and yelling over another questioner, what do you mean by lesbian? And at which point, by the way, I was sitting next to Gary Richards at this time. And um, Jamie Harker's uh, partner at the time was also sitting with us. And Jamie Harker looked at her partner, a woman, because Jamie Harker is a lesbian herself, and Gary Richards beside me. And we're sitting there looking at Jamie and looking at this man belligerently yelling at Jamie. And we're looking back at Jamie. And Gary Richards makes this sort of hand gesture, like between his legs, just say, like, looks at Jamie and says, don't do it. Don't do it. Because we all sense that the answer right now was to scream. Um, and afterwards at a party, people were standing around, not everybody and not everybody, but people were standing around um, saying, this conference has gone too far. This is too much. We, this, is what, this is what happens when you try to read books too far from what they really mean. Next year, we need to, we need to get back to, back to like real scholarship. And next year's conference was called Returns of the Text. It was an explicit way to say, Last year was not textual based evidence. So this year we're going to talk about like text again, rather than let those those queers take the conference over. Um, and many of the people who are involved in that conference have 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 moved on, retired. Many of the people who certainly sided with with uh, Jamie and Gary's readings and recognize the intrinsic value of them are still very much active, devoted Faulkner scholars and, and, in, and in positions of power within the field of Faulkner studies. So I certainly don't want to malign the field. And I certainly won't name individuals who spoke so so vitriolically against the notion of of acknowledging queer identity in these works. Um, but there is a very strong impulse against talking about gay Faulkner. Um, the, the maybe last story on this question I'll I'll mention is at the Faulkner conference they hold um, these early morning early morning panels teaching Faulkner, at which anybody in the audience can just write questions down, and a panel of Faulkner scholars. Uh, we'll just pull a question out of a box and read it aloud, and they'll just talk about ways in which you teach this theme or that theme in Faulkner's work. And yet one year, one of the questions was um, about Faulkner's story, A Rose for Emily, which has been read by many critics as a story with with clear queer undertones. And the character Homer Barron has been aligned in a lot of studies as a gay man, and that's what leads to the conflict in the story. And so someone asks the question, is Homer Barron gay? And a scholar walks up, pulls the question out, reads it aloud, opens, you know, opens it up into the microphone. Question, is Homer Barron gay? No. Throws the question down and goes and sits down and refuses to follow up on it. Just says no, because of course not. We can't, we can't talk about it.
we can't even answer the question that there's this resistance even talking about the question that that's yeah and, and, yeah and i have since the book has come out i have i cannot say that like every faulkner scholar has called me up and told me that i i should be featured as the as the new wonderkind of of faulkner of faulkneriana um but i've certainly gotten a far better response than that but those stories have stayed with me all these years uh and in approaching the book um, this does. This is not why I absolutely refuse to explicitly answer the question: Was William Faulkner gay? But it is also why I go to great length in footnotes to lay out these this evidence and identify very specific documents and go into great detail about some of the stories, so that there is, so that it can't be something that's like, oh, well, you only had this one story or this one piece of evidence. No, in the record, it's it's almost ubiquitous. It's everywhere because exactly. it's real. So, yeah. well, you know, I w- I just wanted to say before um, Morris takes us to the finish line that it it makes me think that as the three of us are working together in this Voices of the Queer South podcast, one of the things we want to consider is how writers of um, LGBTQ plus nonfiction have received resistance for their works. Uh, yeah, and I think that we, I mean, we probably all have our own stories on that. Again, I. Uh, like one thing I'll say there, and I, I know we we're trying to, to wrap up, but I will say um, the public, the story of the publication of the book is really kind of maybe the antidote to that. Um, I knew I wanted to publish with the University Press of Mississippi because that's Mississippi, even though I grew up in the Tennessee side of the line, Mississippi is just, it felt like home the minute I, I crossed the state line. Um, and I loved being at the University of Mississippi, and this is a Faulkner book, and I wanted that press to have it. And I had no evidence to suggest that the press would be a problem, but I just didn't even know what that process would look like. Well, the press reached out to me and said, we see you have some some stuff out there on Faulkner. You happen to have a book? And I said, yeah, I've got a book on gay Faulkner. I want to talk about homosexuality. And within 20 minutes, I had a response from the press where they said, we want that. That's the book that we want to publish. And and they, they did everything right for me. They, they were yeah. from day one on board with this. Um, they actually accepted the original draft of it. And they said, some of the, uh, you know, reviewers have suggested some revisions. We will accept this as is, if you want it, we want this book out there. Um, and I made some changes based on some very good suggestions by my, by my readers, but like it has been 100% something that, that has been greeted with open arms, uh, by the press, which I think says something about the place of, the the desire to place more stories about LGBTQ plus lives within a Southern context. Um, and that's, that's heartened me a lot. I'll say. Yeah. I agree. That's wonderful. Well, uh, well, Pip, that is, I get chills just listening to the last, last few minutes of you telling this. It's so important uh, that we break through the, the, these clouds uh, that have been inflicted on not only the LGBT community, but on women, on anybody who's an other who doesn't fit. Um, and so I'm very proud to be associated with you. So thank you so much for joining us and being here today. We have taken up a lot of your time already, um, and it has been fascinating. So I, I want to urge all the listeners, if you haven't had a chance to read this book, there's so much in there. Um, and it goes well beyond what Pip could talk about today. So um, I urge everyone to get out there and buy it. It's a, it's on sale right now till the end of this month, which is tomorrow, uh, through the University Press of Mississippi, because this is LGBTQ plus month. So take advantage of that. Um, and um, we'll, we'll see you guys again in the next podcast coming up. Thank you so much, Pip. Thank you. It was it was wonderful talking to you. Thank you, Morris.
No problem. This has been this has been really really engaging. Thank you everybody. I'm going to say goodbye and hope to see everyone soon.